Welcome to the Nurse Leader Network podcast with your host, Chris Racinos. Wherever you're going on your nurse leader journey, we're here to help you get there. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of the Nurse Leader Network podcast. We are in for a treat today. Today, our guest is Dan Weberg, who is the head of clinical innovation at Trusted Health and former senior director of nursing innovation at Kaiser Permanente. Welcome to the show, Dan. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I'd like for the listeners to just hear a little bit about your journey, how you got to where you are. You know, I have run into people all the time who are really interested in innovation, and you've actually held several titles in that role. So could you tell us a little bit about where you started and how you landed where you are today? Yeah, sure. I, um, you know, I'm an ER and trauma nurse at, at my heart. So I, uh, I went right in as a new grad at UCLA as an ER and trauma nurse and worked there and just fell in love with that specialty and uh, actually never worked clinically uh, in any other specialty. But uh, when I was in nursing school, how I got into technology and innovation was I figured out how to program the human patient simulators that our school had just bought at Arizona State. And the faculty actually hired me back after I graduated to teach them how to use the simulators. They were stuck in a closet. <laughs> and so that was my kind of entry into figuring out um, the technology. I've always been an early adopter of technology. I was the nurse on the floor with the Palm Pilot 3, like using Hippocrates, trying to look up drugs and like teaching all the nurses how to do that. And uh, so I always had that early adopter mindset. But that, that simulation really kind of uh, catapulted me into both a early consulting role in teaching um, schools how to use simulation, and then also just the technology aspect of it and kind of getting deeper into how to program different things. Uh, after I did a year at UCLA, I went to back to Arizona. They actually wrote a position and I, I went back to Arizona and helped build their new simulation center, which was amazing. And while I was there, they created a master's in healthcare innovation program, a master's program. And I decided it was uh, something I wanted to do. I thought I was going to go in and build the next simulator and, you know, do, do this whole technology company build out and quickly realized that it was a leadership program. And it was taught by Tim Porter Grady and Kathy Malik, who are two really well-known uh, leaders in healthcare have done magnet and shared governance. I think Tim's like the grandfather of shared governance. So uh, they were the they were the faculty, and I, I would sit there during our Saturday immersions and just like it was like taking the pill in the matrix, and you just see the world completely different. You see healthcare completely different, and I just got intrigued by what it takes to lead change in healthcare. And so I really dug into that content and uh, started just trying to innovate everywhere, both clinically, I was working clinically and in the simulation center. And then I finished that program and I was, I remember sitting at the last immersion and they said, Hey, we, we created a PhD in innovation. And I said, Oh, that sounds interesting. I'll just apply. And so I applied and a couple other colleagues applied and I was the only one that got in. And so I got, oh, wow. yeah. So I got one-on-one -on -one mentorship from Tim Porter, Grady, Kathy Malik for five years doing a PhD as the only student in this innovation track. And we really dug into the leadership needed to be able to create change in healthcare. And it was just an amazing experience. Uh, from there, the Dean of Arizona State, who, who's Bern, Bernadette Melnick, who's kind of one of the gurus of evidence-based practice, um, left Arizona State as a Dean and went to Ohio State. And she said, hey, Dan, you need to come with me. I want you to be on my team out there. And I said, I don't even know where Ohio is. Like, I'm from, <laughs> I'm from California. Like, I know no one east of Arizona. Uh, and 
And what was funny is my wife was working for her at the time as a grant coordinator, and she kept working through my wife, like, okay, tell Dan, like, this is gonna be a great opportunity. <laughs> Finally, one day, she sent me the job description of the job that she wanted me to take over there. And she's like, Dan, this is a job description, you'll be the system director for edu- for nursing education on the hospital side, over four hospitals, and you get to write and edit this job description, however you want. And I was like, all right, I guess we're moving to Ohio. So <laughs> <That's> <laughs> packed, awesome. yeah, really cool. it's really cool. Packed up the bags, went to Ohio, worked there for about a year and a half and, and helped redesign all their, um, you know, all their orientation programs. I had all the service line educators, uh, you know, revamp some of their programs and just, it was innovation, not the technology side, but really just getting better and more updated in how we kept our nurses competent and, and trained and ready to go. And uh, kind of out of the blue, a colleague of mine who I'd kind of just known through LinkedIn uh, emailed me one day and said, you need to have my job. And I was like, I don't, what the heck does that mean? And uh, I said, what's your job? And she said, I am the director of nursing innovation at Kaiser Permanente. And um, I said, well, that sounds like a dream job for me. So let's go for it. And uh, so I did the interview and I did a phone interview like the day before Thanksgiving. Uh, they, they, the, on, the, on the call, they, they said, we'll fly you out. I flew out like the Dece- first week of December and on the way back to the airport after the interview at the Garfield Innovation Center, they offered me the job. And I, again, like three months later, I was moving back across the country to California and, um, and went to Kaiser. And in that role, I was able to lead technology innovation on the IT side of, of Kaiser Permanente. So I was the clinical liaison. So I got to work with Google Glass and robots and all kinds of cool stuff. And then uh, from that role, that, that, that team got reorganized a few times and I ended up moving over to the Northern California region, um, helping build up some of the research capacity for nursing within the Northern California region, and then eventually landed back at what we call program office, which is like the corporate office of Kaiser, and um, got tapped to be on the medical school, the team that was building the new Kaiser Permanente Medical School. So I was able to innovate there and be the only nurse on that core team, uh, literally from a post-it note on the wall, uh, all the way to now the school opens in July and uh, helped redesign, or actually designed from the ground up the curriculum, uh, the interprofessional partnerships that we created. Uh, I got to lead that. And and even now, after I've left and gone to the startup, um, they've contracted me back. So I'm still working a couple hours a week, helping them get their interprofessional education. After about seven years at Kaiser, it was time for a change. Uh, I think in my head, it was a, it was a choice of stay at Kaiser for 30 years or go try something different and you can always go back. And I decided to go do something different and joined a startup called Trusted Health, which is a, a really cool technology company focused on nursing where we are building platforms for nurses to find their passion in life, both jobs and manage their professional life through credentials and licensing and all that kind of stuff. And um and we're using that platform to engage with, we have over 70,000 nurses on the platform and we're building resources like how do new grads find jobs, licensure guides, compensation guides, just all these things that nurses don't have at their fingertips to manage their professional life. We're building that and it's been amazing. Yeah, I've seen, I mean, I'm seeing Trusted Health explode all over social media. I've, I um, saw ads for it actually in Facebook the other day and I, I thought of you, but I've seen it all over LinkedIn and just all over this different types of social media platforms. And I've, I've been really, really impressed with the quality of the content that's coming out on those social media platforms in terms of really just kind of guiding folks to getting them to where they want to be, which is very much in alignment with what we do here at the Nurse Leader Network. You know, um, you kind of 
brought up some several interesting points throughout your career and where you've landed. Uh, I have a you know question. You so you're you're talking about platforms and technology and how it's it's really benefiting nurses. Where do you see nurses and technology going in the future? I, I you know Trusted Health is one of many tech companies that I see that are beginning to recruit nurses, and so just kind of love to hear your perspective. Yeah, I think um, I think there's a couple things that are coming together that will provide nurses a different experience than they've had in the past. I think on the staffing side, at least on like the travel nurse side, um, nurses have always been a commodity up until now. So they have been at the mercy of both the health system and a recruiter. And I think, you know, they, they, they don't have all the information. They don't have the transparency in the pay. They don't have the transparency in what facility they're going to, the ratios, the user feedback from nurses have been there. And I think technology is actually opening that up. And you can think of it almost like a match.com meets Yelp, um, where the nurses now have a platform where they have full transparency into where they're going to go, both travel and eventually it's going to be in permanent placements and, and really whatever they want to do professionally. But they can see how much they're going to make there. They are able to be in the driver's seat as far as negotiations. And with the shortage coming, that's going to they're going to be empowered more and more to say, you know, this hospital over here is not going to give me everything I need to be a great professional. I can walk across the street and get it over there or demand it over there. So I think that that transparency and negotiation power um, and, and the fact that technology is able to connect all those dots easily for them is going to be huge. Um, and I think that the other piece that's going to be disruptive on the practice side is going to be just a continual growth of machine learning and artificial intelligence and how that's going to give us recommendations and insights into patient care that we've never had before. And one of the examples I give is, you know, the MUSE score, the modified early warning score for, you know, deciding if a patient's going to crash on your unit or get worse or need rapid response. You know, that's a really tangible score that's been around for a really long time. It's got good validity. But and nurses can touch and feel it like you can take the vital signs, you can see that number, you can go touch that patient. But now there's machine algorithms that take hundreds and hundreds of points of data, spin them up, you know, from from that patient's history, you know, years before they even come into the hospital and can create this more accurate algorithm to say if that patient's going to be at risk or crash hours before the MUSE score, hours before our intuition, hours before we'd even see it. And so we're going to have to figure out how do we assess these uh, machine learning algorithms, these, this AI insight, and, uh, and incorporate it in our clinical decision making. So not just trusting the machine, but being able to take that machine insight and, and do what we do best, which is, is take it into the context of everything else. I think that's going to be really disruptive because the school's that are training our nurses are not up to date on that stuff. And so I think those are going to be the two, that transparency and then the clinical insights are going to be the two biggest disruptors to nursing. Wow. I mean, you just generated so many questions in my mind based on on what you said. Um, my first question, and so I kind of will ask it one at a time, is we, we all know, like when you look on Yelp, you know, you check out a restaurant, if there's one star, you're not going. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we know that if you, are looking at Airbnb, if there's one star or bad reviews, like you're totally just not going to book that. In terms of, you know, the nursing profession as a nurse, if I looked at a hospital and there was one star, uh, I'm totally not going to take that assignment or go. So what do you think nurse leaders can do to really ensure that they're ready for this huge transformation that's about to explode in the nursing profession? 
you know, I think the biggest thing nurse leaders can do is really um, is match that transparency and and talk openly about how they're going to address the issues that come up. So I think in the past, and this isn't across the board, but you could kind of hide some of that stuff. Like, you know, the patient ratio stuff, you know, it's that would be behind the scenes. You wouldn't really know until you're on the unit that it wasn't really five to one. It was eight to one and that kind of stuff or nights was different or they were really short staffed all the time. You couldn't figure that out until you're actually in the system. And now because, you know, nurses are able to go through those systems and social media and all those type of platforms and things they are able to share that information. And so nurses are making more informed choices. So I think as a nurse leader, you know, you may, you may, you totally know those issues. So if, talk to these candidates that are coming in and tell them how you're going to address it or what you're doing to fix it. Um, and I think that's the biggest piece because then they can at least see it's being worked on and it's not being hidden behind and you're not just using nurses to come in and fill these holes and that kind of stuff. So I think transparency is the big piece. Um, and then I think the other one is just engaging the network. And we talk about this in, in, in our work a lot, you know, um, especially on the travel nurse side, it's, you know, you have these people who have been at dozens of hospitals across the country and you know they have a lot of experiences so how do you tap those people as they rotate through your system to actually gain insights that you would never have from your own staff you could learn best practices you can learn how they solved a similar problem somewhere else or what to avoid and so i think the nurse leader di- diving in with those with their staff both their full-time you know core staff and the flexible staff that come through their hospital just to keep learning and iterating on what the best practices are is going to be huge as well. Okay. You just touched on a point that I had never considered as a nurse executive, which is pretty darn sad. You know, we, you mentioned Tim Porter O'Grady and we really have highlighted shared governance and just having our frontline be um, really proactive and, and taking charge of their roles as professional nurses. But we have not invited any travelers into our shared governance. And, you know, the point that you just made was really, really something that I think is a huge loss for those of us who are not taking advantage of all of that knowledge and experience. So I'm going to just say thank you, because that's something I'm immediately going to take back. That's awesome. <laughs> thank yeah, you. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that I think it, it's one of the myths that I bust, because I never, I never really knew about travelers until I joined this company. But you know, it's one of the myths that I think has is the tradition and mindset that's just been around, which is in the past, travel nurses were kind of like they were they kind of could scoot around the system. Like if they didn't really weren't a fit somewhere, they could go somewhere else and you couldn't really track what was going on and they could go state to state and that kind of stuff. And there was kind of this bad um, reputation of travel nursing. But I think now with all the transparency, compliance, all that kind of stuff, like I think of the good travel nurses as like special operatives. Like these are the green berets that have been in the, <laughs> you know, in the, in the hardest places in the country. And now they're in your system for 13 weeks, tap them for everything they know, like give them extra time to come in and sit with the nurse managers and the nurse leaders to tell them, you know, to give an exit interview, even just to assess what, what could have done, been done better, what they saw that's different than what, you know, somewhere that was even um, more high performing or whatever. Like they're just as, big source of information. And um, we've been interviewing some of them on our side. And and they're like, no, we never get an exit interview. We know we never, ever met the manager. We, they never even knew who we were. And it's like, there's really an opportunity there. So I think it, it's, it's worth tapping into. That insight is incredible. Yeah. I think for those of you who are listening, if you have travel nurses working in your area, I totally recommend uh, really looping them in and let's, let's tap into them in terms of their experience. You know, you mentioned another thing about artificial intelligence and insight and how we could utilize that to improve patient care. 
as a nurse leader, what are some things that you think we could do um, both on the academic side and on the practice side to really begin to prepare our nurses for what's about to come? Yeah, I think um, there's two pieces. One, I think on the academic side, we need to have the practice leaders, the nurse leaders to um, really create those academic partnerships to give real life case examples of how these changes are happening at the bedside. I think sometimes academia is a little bit behind. Um, and and so I think they need that expertise, whether that's, you, you know, nurse executives sitting on the academic board uh, with the deans and that kind of stuff, or even just being adjunct faculty or, or tapping in and giving examples of what changes are happening within the hospital. I think that's a, a big piece. I think on the, on the practice side, in the hospital side um, or in the clinic, uh, what I'm finding is that the nurses are kind of an afterthought. Uh, and I, I don't know if it's intentional or not. It just, it's, it's just not part of what's happening with this AI stuff. So um, there's an example of a local hospital here in the Bay Area who created this amazing score that was able to like predict uh, the onset of sepsis hours before anyone else, any, any other assessment could. And they created this score, this number, and they rolled it out to the nurses and the nurses are like, what is this? I don't, you know, I don't know what an eight out of 10, 10 means. I have no idea what you're even telling me. Why would I trust this random number versus my clinical assessment? And so the nurses were never involved in the user design of the system. And so it was just rolled out to them, which I think happens a lot in, in healthcare. Yeah. So from a nurse leader perspective, it's how do you know that these things are happening and get at the table early and bring your frontline nurses with you so that they can help design how this um, these insights, these outputs, um, these systems are designed so that it works within their workflow. They understand it enough and they don't have to know all the math and all the junk behind that, but just understand enough so they can they know that this is a reliable score or, or output that they can make a clinical decision on. And I think the worst thing we can do is just wait for it to come out. Uh, and, and it just doesn't, it doesn't mesh with our workflow. So I think just getting at the tables is a big piece. Yeah. I mean, I think it um, speaks to human centered design as well, right? So yeah. we, we want to design what we're using for the user. And so by not incorporating them early on, you're not going to end up having a product that is successful. So yeah, I think you're hitting the nail on the head with that. You coined a term earlier in the conversation, disruptive innovation. You know, on a somber note, Clay Christensen passed away um, a couple of days ago, um, who was the godfather of disruptive innovation. He really coined that term and, and uh, researched it and defined really what it is. Could you talk to me a little bit about what disruptive innovation is? Yeah, I mean, disruptive innovation really um, kind of blows up the current uh, operating model. I mean, at its core, it was it's a business term where basically the innovation creates an entirely new market that never existed before. And so uh, you can think of things like Uber. I mean, Uber is a disruptive innovation. It can created a whole new market of sharing your vehicle and being able to drive people around. Now people say, well, the taxi was there before, but it, it's completely different than the taxi. It created an entire new business model. Um, and so, so that would be an example of a disruptive innovation. Um, and it also disrupts the values. So, you know, before we never thought we would get in a stranger's car to move from one place to another, and now it becomes the norm. So, uh, so not only did it disrupt the business model, but it disrupted the societal values of what we thought was normal. Um, and so at its core, that's what a disruptive innovation is. Okay. 
can you tell me, you know, I, I took a test, the MBTI, a couple of years ago, and it, it's, it's a personality test for those of you who haven't heard of it. And um, it said that I'm creative. So I'm, I'm really the type of person that can create and really think abstractly. Um, and so, you know, the opposite hand of the creator is the folks that really get into the weeds and are very detail oriented. So thinking about disruptive innovation, it's something that is a passion of mine. But I find that because I am so passionate about it, and then I have folks on the other side of the coin that maybe aren't so passionate about it, you know, it, it could lead to innovation overwhelm is what I like to call it. Talk to me a little bit about what you see as um, some ways that a nurse leader could differentiate whether a process or, um, you know, you needed to do some kind of performance improvement versus when it's time to really look at disruptive innovation. Yeah, so um, that's a really great insight, and there are, there definitely are two and two, two sides of the spectrum, and then there's people in between that even. Uh, and so the first thing I would say is to be a leader of innovation, you don't have to be an innovator, and so uh, you don't have to be that creative type. You don't have to think of things, you know, new things and disruptive things to be a leader of innovation. You have to be able to create the the space for the creative. Um, juices to flow. So even if you're a detail oriented, don't like disruption, kind of go go through the the day to day status quo or more performance improvement minded, you can still lead innovation by creating a safe space and feeling okay with allowing for those tests of change and that failure and that kind of stuff. So that would be the first piece of it. Um, the second piece is high performing organizations actually have two competencies and and they kind of map to what you just said. The first competency is they're very good at performance improvement, which is they're they're really good at improving what they already know, uh, and so that might be that um, that down in the details person, right? They're they're really good at making sure that the stuff we're doing now gets done efficiently, and then the other competency a high performing team has is innovation, and uh, and that's that creative side, the disruptors, the ones pushing the walls and kind of challenging the status quo and that kind of stuff. So if you have both those people on your team and you leverage them correctly, you can actually have a really high performing team. Now, what happens in organizations is they separate those people and those teams usually. So like performance improvement is usually under the quality team and innovation is over with strategy or in some other you know technology or something, and they never talk to each other. But in a in the highest performing team, those two skill sets are intimately combined. And what happens if you don't do that is if you just have performance improvement and that's all you look at, then you're only going to improve the known. And so at some point, you are get, you'll be super efficient at what you already know. But if there's a disruption or a change in the market, the economics, the, the landscape, you become irrelevant because you're not able to take the next big leap because you're only improving what you know. And if you just have innovation skill sets, you're bringing in so many disruptive ideas, new things, um, new workflows, all that kind of stuff, that you are really inefficient. And so you're not sustainable long term because you can't optimize what you're bringing in. But if you have both, you're able to take the innovations, the new ideas in and optimize them with the performance improvement until they're optimized. Something shifts, you're able to jump off that, do another innovation, bring it in, optimize it. And so it's this cycle where um, you, you're always continually moving forward and optimizing at the same time. And that's what a high performing system looks like. So you, you need both of those personalities uh, on your team and leverage them correctly. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think you hit the nail on the head when you said that very frequently see that under quality, there's a performance improvement aspect of it. And then innovation is, you're right, 
completely under strategy and without marrying the two, there's no way to execute on Mm -hmm. it. So I agree. You know, you talked about what you want to do for those of us who are listening in and just wondering, you know, am I fostering that, that innovative culture? Um, Could you talk to me a little bit about, I'd like to kind of do this in a fun way about what a toxic leader (laughs) might look like? Like what, what, what are some questions we want to ask ourselves so we can check and make sure that we're not that toxic leader? (laughs) Oh God, I got to be careful here because I've actually worked for some toxic leaders before, but um, (laughs) I think we all have. Yeah, we We all all have. have. Yeah. Um, so, so th- this is something we wrote about in our book. Uh, it's it's chapter thirteen. I co-wrote it with uh, a colleague of mine from Cedar Sinai, uh, Courtney Caulfield, who's an executive director there. And uh, we had just we had experienced a few times in our career just this 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 toxic feeling, and that's the best way we could describe it. Where you you come into work and you're immediately frustrated. You don't know why, like every meeting is just grinding. You can't find the excitement. You go home, it's affecting your home life. Like it's affecting your relationships with other people. And, and it may not be the a person necessarily. Sometimes it's a person that does it, but sometimes it's just the dynamic of a team. And the best way we could describe it is like a, a septic toxicity that just <laughs> overcomes the team because they, they cannot, they never move forward. They meet to meet, they do all these things and it just, it's just ineffective. But um, so we wrote a chapter about it. And basically at the, at the end of the day, what a toxic leader, leader does is it's all about them. And so what they do is they tend to isolate their team by creating controls of communication. So that team's not allowed to reach out and talk to other people. Or if they do, they get reprimanded. Um, the, they can have new ideas, but unless it's that leader's idea, it's not worth going after. Um, they meet to meet and there's just a, a cycle of just spinning around the same thing over and over and over again. And you don't actually execute on anything. And when you do, the leader kind of takes credit of it. And that's kind of the extreme of it. There's definitely levels of toxicity, but, but what happens is that team gets so isolated and focused on the leader, all the energy, whether it's chaotic energy or, or positive energy, all gets focused in on that one toxic leader and the leader thrives on that. Um, in, a, in a healthy system, that energy is dispersed out into the rest of the system and it creates better uh, processes and, and relationships and, and all kinds of stuff in the system. But in a toxic side, it kind of gets isolated uh, and focused on this one person. So, so that's, don't do that, I guess is the bad thing. <laughs> there, there's actually, and I can send you a link so you can put it in the show notes, but there's a, there's a couple articles that just list out like the specific behaviors of what a toxic leader is. And some of them are like, um, they flip flop between who they like on any given day. And so sometimes you're in the in crowd, sometimes you're in the out crowd and you never know where you stand. So you're always kind of guessing. Um, they are really good at managing up, but they're really bad at executing with the team that directly reports to them. So those are just a couple things that you can see. And if, when you see that list, you're going to say like, oh my God, I totally work for somebody like that. Um, <laughs> but the consequences I think are what we need to really focus on. And as nurse leaders, this is something we really need to, uh, to dive into because the, the evidence on poor leadership, and I, I did a paper in 2009 about this, and then there's more and more evidence coming out about it. But the, if, if you're a transactional leader, so you're like carrot and stick, you know, you, you congratulate when you're good, um, kind of reprimand when you're bad kind of thing. If you're leading like that, you actually impact not only your staff's burnout rate, which increases um, tremendously, but there's also evidence that patient mortality increases. And so if you have bad leaders on your team uh, and they continue to be bad and end up being kind of this toxic side, they're actually killing patients and burning out your staff, which are two huge issues that you have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. 
And so you, as a nurse leader, we have to be able to be able to identify these toxic behaviors early on, address them. And if they can't be addressed, then you have to get rid of that toxic leader or even a toxic team, or it's going to kill your patients. And I think it's just as serious an issue as HAPUs, CAUTIs, falls, all the quality indicators we're so focused on, and we kind of skip over bad leaders. And I think we need to address it. And nurse leaders need to take that as seriously as all those quality indicators are held accountable for. Absolutely. You know, you kind of mentioned one of the toxic leadership traits is um, being able to manage up well, but, you know, not being able to execute. Do you think or have you seen any weak or early signals that could cue to somebody that maybe their manager or their director or whoever it is that they're leading is not leading their team in an in a non-toxic manner? You know, I, it, it's hard the higher up you are and the further away from the team you are, like, for example, a nurse executive looking at, you know, uh, trying to assess if a nurse manager, you know, a couple layers down is is going to be toxic or not. It, it's tough. Um, I mean, you, you can definitely look for the certain behaviors that uh, like, like, are they flip flopping? If, if you dig in a little bit and kind of ask some tough questions or detailed questions about the work they're up to, and they can't answer it right away, you know, that might be a, a clue that they're they're kind of uh, riding the skin of their pants kind of thing, but or by the seat of their pants. So, you know, that, that, that's part of it. But I think the number one thing you can do, and uh, I don't see a lot of leaders do this, but I think it's an amazing practice is skip level meetings. So, you know, going, going down to the level uh, below that, that leader and just having open and honest conversations with the team. And, you know, you have to be careful because there's going to be some complaining and there's going to be some kudos and there's going to be some pol pol politicking and that kind of stuff. But I think the more that the leaders can build relationships across the system and not just rely on the hierarchy reporting and, and that kind of stuff, I think uh, those skip level meetings can give you a lot of insight to say, you know, there's something off here and we need to dig in a little bit more. Yeah, I agree with you. You know, that's a practice that I, I actually learned to do when I was um, working at the VA. And so I've carried it through. But I, I really like to sit and I call them town halls. And so I just kind of have town halls and the town halls will be, you know, with either my managers or with frontline staff. And it really is just to kind of be open and share great things, you know, share ideas, share things that they think need to be changed, focus on the three E's. So what is going to make us be able to connect emotionally better with our patients and our staff? easy, what's going to make it easier for our patients and our staff and efficient, what are some efficiencies that we can make for our patients and our staff. So we kind of focus around those. And I think it's a great practice and it's completely eye-opening. And even if there are things that come up in there that aren't maybe what you want to hear about the folks that you're leading, it's a great opportunity to open up that dialogue because a lot of times I think they don't realize some of the behavior that they have. So it's a nice way to kind of share and help develop it, you know, your folks. Yep, totally agree. So you, you mentioned earlier um, the Garfield Innovation Center. Could you tell us a little bit about what that is and if an organization wanted to embark on a journey like that, what might it look like? Yeah, so the Garfield Innovation Center is, a, I think it's a 30,000 square foot facility uh, in San Leandro that Kaiser Permanente built in order to uh, test out innovative change. And they do everything from building mock-up patient rooms that they then build into their new hospitals to testing out technology, to testing out the electronic medical record. They do trainings there. And uh, and then they do some emerging technology disruptive things like robots and, and other stuff as well. 
Um, so the, the way Kaiser Permanente ended up deciding to do this was they, um, they knew they, they, they were doing some innovative things. And they wanted to redesign hospital rooms and test technology. So what they were doing in the past is they would rent out big ballrooms at hotels. And they quickly realized that was a really expensive way to, uh, to do innovation. And so they were able to acquire this building and, and actually build half of it as meeting space where only innovation meetings could happen. So you have to make a case that you're doing something creative and new and, and that kind of stuff in order to use it. And then part of the building is built out to be like a hospital and a clinic. And so it's literally the mock-up space for the, the hospitals they have. And, and then you can test all kinds of things. You can test workflows. You can put in new technology. If you're getting a new computer, a new bed, a, you know, a new device, you can put it all in there and test it before you actually deploy it out into a large hospital with you know, working nurses and patients alive. So it's a great tool uh, and, and location to do those things. And from a meeting perspective, it allows people to kind of break away from their medical center or from the corporate office and come to somewhere that's uh, built differently. It has a different vibe to it. It has uh, exhibits of all these new technologies and things. And so people can kind of break out of their day-to-day and go try and uh, invent things, uh, whether it's workflow or meetings or strategy or whatever in a different place. Do they do only um, testing? So for example, are all of the like workflow um, redesigns, do they include mock patients or do they ever involve real patients in terms of like human-centered design? Yeah, they bring in patients for sure. Yeah, I've been in, I, you know, when I was working uh, in the innovation team, we would bring in patient advisors. Uh, we would bring in nurses, we'd bring in physicians. And, and so human centered design is the core uh, tool set they use for a lot of those uh, processes. It sounds like a great way to bring the nurses to the table in terms of getting in front of um, the work that's happening. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I have another question how it, it just kind of ties into everything that we've talked about. So some of the disruptive innovation, some of the staffing models that are changing, how nurses can really ensure that they're not creating a toxic environment and that innovation can really flourish. How do we as nurse leaders really focus on nursing as a profession from typically we, we see the profession and we think of where we stand, right? I'm a chief nurse exec. I think of it in the hospital and the clinic kind of setting. How do we get out of looking at nursing as a profession from just within our worldview and uh, the typical nursing channels into, you know, where nursing needs to go and is going? Um, Well, I think you hit on a good point, which is nursing traditionally has been very focused on itself and hasn't been out into the world of other things. And it's showing more now in the technology space, but it's also in the, it's beyond that, I think, too. But the technology areas are kind of showing where nursing just not at the table. And I think we need to demand a seat there. So, uh, you know, I give an example in one of my talks about, you know, Apple is hiring physicians, but they're doing population health. And so why isn't nurse, why aren't nurses involved with that? Or um, Google's looking at these massive longitudinal data sets. Well, the best profession to look at massive longitudinal data sets are nurses. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so, so I think it's this, people don't understand all the nuances of what nurses do. And so I think they default to, oh, well, you know, the doctor's the top of the food chain, let's go get them. I think nurses need to do a better job of describing how they can impact the future of care a little bit better. And I think our national associations could do a better job of that, uh, and getting us at the table. 
Um, I'm really excited about Oriana Badeau, who's um, the new VP of Innovation for the American Nurses Association. I know her uh, pretty well, and she's you know she her mission is to get on that uh, at the table with those groups. Um, Bonnie Clipper, who is the past innovation uh, VP at ANA as well, is on a mission to make sure nurses are impacting in non-traditional roles uh, in technology companies and and outside the hospital and clinic system. So I think that, you know as nurse leaders we have such great insight and we're leading the entire working world of the hospital and the health system. How do we take that knowledge and then also uh, impact in other ways by being on boards of technology companies or being involved in venture capital or mentoring startups or those type of things? I think there's a great opportunity for us to do that. And, um, it, and it takes you being able to dedicate time to that, which I know for nurse executives is near impossible but also just taking that leap out of your day-to-day work and, and doing something different and feeling uncomfortable for a little bit. But um, at the end of the day, these companies, these, these disruptors want the insights you have and they value it once they understand what you can bring. Yeah. And, you know, I, I like to use the saying, you, you make time for what's important. So I think as a nurse leader, regardless of if you're just beginning to get starting, you know, in, in nursing and you want to become a leader or you're the CEO of a company. You, if this is something that's important, you'll you'll absolutely make time for it. Yeah, I agree. And we have to. And if we just stay stuck on what we're doing day to day, we're going to be irrelevant. And there's going to be another profession that will come and swoop in and take over some of that stuff. So um, we we just need to we need to step up as nurses. I agree. I hear a lot of in different roles that I've been in a lot of nurses just really kind of say, well, they don't do this or they, you know, limit our practice or, and so it's, it seems to be, you know, collectively, if you look at, um, there's a book I'm reading right now, it's called Atomic Habit. And it talks about really breaking things down and movements down into the tiniest particle that they can possibly be, because collectively you put them together and you're going to have, you're going to be able to move on what you're trying to move on. And so thinking from that perspective or that lens what is one thing that a nurse leader could do today to really try to influence and get our voices out there? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is exactly the, what, what you said is um, it's not they, it's us. We have complete control over what we practice and how we impact that. And so uh, the minute we start blaming other people for where we are, the, that's when we lose. And so I think nursing as a profession can um, do a better job of blaming ourselves and blaming others and actually just ex- start executing on things. And I, I had a LinkedIn post recently that was like, great, it's the year of the nurse. I'm so excited about that, but let's stop celebrating it and let's actually execute on and take this platform and do something with it because we can celebrate ourselves and say we're the most trusted profession for 18 years in a row. But unless we actually take the leap start challenging assumptions, start going after policy uh, that we need, we know needs to be changed, like full practice authority for nurse practitioners and those type of things, um, then we're going to continue to be in our uh, victim mentality and we're going to be run over by everyone else who's willing to take that first step. So as a nurse leader, you're in a perfect position with the title, with the experience, with the network, 
uh, and even with the budget control to be able to do things differently. And so think about how you can allocate your time and your staff's time to actually go out and do some of these disruptions, support them to go to the national conferences, support them to go to the non-traditional things like South by Southwest and the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference where nurses are completely absent and get them there so they can be a voice and start making the connections that will help move us forward. And so I think those are just a couple things like we can't just keep sending people to AONL and the ANA conferences all the time. Those are great. And those are where we can build some of our own internal networking. But we got to start going to those other things where people are at and, and they're on the edges of where the healthcare system's going. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, I mean, it's right on. And that's part of the reason I decided to start this podcast was to bring on folks from healthcare and outside of the healthcare industry to kind of help us reframe the way that healthcare is going. So I think that's great. I think some other ways that, you know, are some things that we could do today is, you know, really look, go on LinkedIn. There's a ton of other platforms you can go to whatever board certification that you're on, but really look at um, ways that you could get on boards. So becoming a board member is something that's highly influential. Um, also looking at how do you, you know, get into the organizations that are advocating for nursing policy. And sometimes those are nursing professions, right? So a does a wonderful job with our policy, but there's also non-nursing organizations that really want to help and get behind what nursing is doing. So I think just really looking into today, what can you do to begin advocating for our profession? Yep, totally agree. So, I mean, this has been an awesome interview, Dan. I really appreciate it. If um, folks are interested in learning more about Trusted Health, well, where could they find more information? Yeah, so uh, trustedhealth.com, you can find out and, and look at what we're up to. There's a whole resource guide with all kinds of cool stuff there. Um, so please feel free to, to check that out. You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Nurse Dan, uh, Dr. Nurse Dan on Twitter. And LinkedIn is probably where I spend most of my time. And so Dan, Daniel Weberg on LinkedIn and, and find me and um, would love to connect with people uh, any way we can. I do a fair amount of speaking around the country and uh, so if you see something that uh, I'm headed to, please come up and introduce yourselves. Awesome. And then you mentioned you um, have a book out. So what's the name of that book? Yeah, so we have two books, uh, actually three. One's a second edition. But uh, the first one I think will, based on this conversation, will be relevant is called um, uh, Leadership for Evidence-Based Innovation. And I'm the lead author on it. And my colleague, Sandra Davidson, who's the dean of the University of Calgary School of Nursing, is the co-author. That's where you'll find toxic leadership. That's where you'll find uh, the technology disruptions. You'll you'll find a chapter on the difference between performance improvement and innovation. So a lot of the stuff we talked about is in there. The other book is geared towards more of the frontline leader, uh, and it's called Leadership in Nursing Practice. It's used in a lot of R&BSM programs and master's programs. And so uh, those are the two big ones. Great. The links to all everything you kind of mentioned will be in the show notes for everybody who might be driving or exercising while they're listening to this podcast. So don't worry, you won't miss it. It'll be in the show notes. Dan, I had an amazing time this morning. I, I just really appreciate you coming on and sharing all of the great things that you are experienced in. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This was great. <laughs> all right. Have a wonderful day. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks.